Let's turn our attention now to the reading and hearing of God's holy word. Our Old Covenant reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. This is the word of God. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Our New Covenant reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And, then, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what had been seen. The grass withers and the flowers of the field, they fade and they fall. But this, the word of our God, endures forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come here this morning... As your people who have been called by your name. As your people who are longing for and needful for hearing your holy word. Lord, it is through your word that we are given light and life. And so, Lord, we ask 
that you would indeed send your Holy Spirit upon us in these moments. Lord, that our dullness would be awakened. Lord, that we would indeed hear your word. And that that word by your spirit would penetrate down deep into our hearts. That we would not remain unchanged, but Lord, that you would change us in the inner man. Lord, that you would make us to know more fully what Christ has done for us. And Lord, that you would impel us to obey you from our hearts. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes people talk about having a mountaintop experience. And maybe you've said that once or twice in your life about things that you've likewise experienced. You know, one of those moments or seasons of life that were so formative to you that they altered the way that you saw the world or served as a highlight or a high point of your very life. Now, the idea of a mountaintop experience is a common expression that's used in our culture, but it actually originates from the scriptures. The Bible speaks about mountains all the time. The mountains are where the most glorious things happen, particularly where God meets with his people and does extraordinary things. Just think about it for a minute. Think about some of those moments on the mountains. Think about when Abraham took Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah. And as he was going to sacrifice his only son, the Lord there provided a ram for the offering instead. Or think about what we heard this morning about the Lord meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai. And there the Lord revealed his law and revealed his character. Or think about on Mount Carmel when the Lord demonstrated his power to Elijah in the contest with the prophets of Baal as he sent down consuming fire from the heavens. And later, the Lord came to comfort and encourage Elijah in a gentle whisper on top of Mount Horeb when Elijah was exhausted and he was fearful. Or think about Mount Zion, where the people of the Lord would worship as they gathered there at the temple, and the glory of the Lord filled that place. And of course, there are many more, many more instances in the scriptures where the Lord meets with his people on top of the mountains to provide for them, to reveal his character and his will to them, to show his power, to give them immense comfort. By his very presence. Now Jesus here in Luke chapter 9 is taking his disciples to the top of a mountain. And this is not a hike for the sake of seeing the natural world as beautiful as it may be. He's leading them up to the mountain that they would behold the glory of heaven. As they behold the glory of God in the person of Christ himself. Luke sets the scene for us in verse 28. Jesus here takes Peter and John and James, the inner circle of his disciples, up with him to this mountain. 
And then although the Gospels uh, don't tell us exactly what mountain this was, traditionally it's been supposed that it was probably Mount Tabor, which is about 11 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. And upon that mountain we see that Jesus was praying and something extraordinary happened. His face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. We call this the transfiguration, which simply means that a a change of figure took place. Now let's think for a moment about Jesus' figure. What do we know about Jesus' figure? Well, the Gospels tell us nothing about him having some type of an extraordinary figure. Isaiah prophesied that the suffering servant would be ordinary in appearance. He would look like an ordinary man. Isaiah 53, 2 tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And that really sums up the appearance of Jesus. By all outward ordinary appearances, he is an ordinary man. Born into an ordinary family. Nothing outwardly that would distinguish him from anyone else. Yet upon that mountain, for a few moments, something changed. What was veiled, what was hidden by the garments of human flesh was exposed. It's interesting that that Luke alone records the fact for us that Jesus was praying. None of the other Gospels tell us that. And one commentator suggests that we should look at this moment in a similar way as 2 Kings 6.17, where if we think back to 2 Kings, Elisha's servant was fearful because of the enemy army that was coming against them. And so Elisha prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is that kind of moment on the mountain. So that what the disciples are seeing with their eyes is the unveiling of glory. The spiritual reality of Jesus' communion with his Father And notice the importance of when this mountaintop experience happened in the Gospel of Luke. In verse 28, Luke situates it in relation to the days after these sayings. And if you look back up in in earlier parts of Luke chapter 9, you see that Luke is emphasizing here the connection between this event and Jesus' disclosure of his path of suffering, and the cost of discipleship. That Jesus is going to suffer. That he's going to die and he's going to be raised again. And like his path, discipleship too is costly. And it requires that you lay your life down in order to gain your life, is what Jesus said. In many ways, the transfiguration then is a comfort to the disciples in the midst of hearing these hard sayings from their Lord. Here Jesus exposes his glory to his closest disciples. And here they get a glimpse of heaven. 
And they get a glimpse of the glory of Christ himself. And this is what, ha- what happens when Jesus is praying. Right? This is what's happening as Jesus is communing with his Father. Something else extraordinary happens in this passage. A couple of people show up. There's Moses and Elijah. Long dead saints, right? They've long been dead, yet Moses shows up. Moses, the mediator of the old covenant. Moses, who led Israel out of bondage in Egypt and through the wilderness. Moses, who himself received God's law and gave it to his people. And there's a lot of Sinai imagery here on this mountain. I hope that you see that. In fact, as we read from Exodus 34, Moses had the experience of a transfiguration in some sense as well. As Moses had been with God and received the law and heard of God's promises, he would come down and because he had been in the Lord's presence, his face would shine. He had a reflective glory in his communion with God that would fade with time, and so he veiled himself. So there's Moses, and and then there's Elijah. Elijah there, the representative of the prophets of God. And it was Elijah who was expected to return and usher in the new age of God's redemption. It was Elijah who ascended up to heaven in a whirlwind as the heavenly chariots of fire separated him from Elisha, if you remember. And here they are, Moses and Elijah, citizens of heaven, right? Citizens of heaven come down and they are with Jesus on this mountain. Citizens of heaven glorified. Right? These are, they're, they're heavenized, we might say. Standing and talking with Jesus. Now sometimes Christians like to talk about the Bible heroes they'd like to meet when they get to heaven. Right? I want to talk to Moses and ask him this certain question. Or I want to talk to Jonah and ask him what it was like to be inside the belly of the fish. Ask all kinds of questions that maybe the Bible doesn't answer. And here on the mountain, Jesus has this opportunity to talk with Moses and Elijah, with the saints of old, the stories that he's heard. Luke is the only gospel that reveals the topic of their conversation. Look at verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Did you see the topic of their conversation? Did you see that what they're talking about? Right? Their, their conversation isn't about what Moses did. Their conversation isn't about what Elijah did, but it's about what Jesus is going to do. They're talking about Jesus' departure. Right? And this isn't a discussion about the journey to Jerusalem, but what will be accomplished at Jerusalem. There's something significant going on here. See, this word departure is actually the Greek word exodus. 
And Luke is using it to describe what Jesus is going to do. Which is what Jesus told his disciples he was going to do if you look back up in verse 22. That the Son of Man would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's what they're talking about. As those three men are there together talking, they're talking about Jesus' saving work. They're talking about Jesus' exodus, not saving God's people from bondage in Egypt, but saving God's people from bondage to sin and the curse thereof, which Moses' exodus pointed to. Accomplished not by parting the Red Sea, but by Christ passing through the waters of judgment to bear the sins of his people as his body is broken and his blood is spilled. That's what they're talking about. They're not talking about Elijah calling down fire upon the worshipers of Baal. But the fire of God's wrath coming upon Jesus to pay for the sins of his people. That's what they're talking about. They're not talking about Elijah being carried up to heaven in a whirlwind, but of Jesus who will be raised from the dead and who will ascend to the Father's right hand in glory. That's what they're talking about. Jesus is who Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, bear witness to. That's who they're talking about. But as disciples wake up and see this, Peter's a little mixed up. Once the disciples finally wake up, they're sleeping through this. Right? It's interesting in the scriptures that when the most glorious things are happening, God's people are sleeping. Maybe that's kind of like church on Sunday morning. When God's speaking, we're asleep. All of a sudden, we're tired. The coffee all of a sudden doesn't work. But as the disciples awake from their sleep, they behold the scene in front of them. And Luke tells us that Peter doesn't understand the significance of what was going on. Peter on the mountain. He's there on this mountaintop having this experience And apparently seeing what he sees, he wants to stay right there. Right? It's heavenly. It's wonderful. It's glorious. Who wouldn't want to stay there? So his initial response in the moment was to take action, right? What can I do here now? How can I keep this thing going? We can admire Peter's initiative and his passion, right? But Luke's editorial comment here uh, tells us that Peter said this, not knowing what he said. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't know what he was talking about. Which shows us that there was a, a lot of heat from Peter, but only a little light. Lots of passion, but it lacked understanding. Much like his confession, if we looked back in verse 20. Peter didn't understand what he was Saying it's not that he didn't comprehend his own words. He comprehended the words that were coming out of his mouth. But he didn't understand what was happening before him. And therefore his suggested action was completely out of touch with the moment. 
Right? Peter had this initial response to the mountain. He, he wants to stay there. What is, it that, what is it that Peter is not understanding as he makes that requested action? Seems that Peter didn't understand who Jesus was. And he didn't understand the timing of what Jesus was doing. Right? Peter wanted to build these tents for the three glorious men as if they were equals. But that's a problem because Jesus is not a prophet like Moses in the sense that they are equal. We see that even from the conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Right? Jesus is not placed alongside the law and the prophets. Moses' exodus is not the topic of conversation. Elijah is not the topic of conversation. But the law and the prophets testify to Christ. What they want to talk about is Jesus. What they want to talk about is his exodus. It is Jesus who gains the attention of the saints of old. Right? Moses and Elijah and Jesus are not some trifecta of God's revelation. But Moses and Elijah are there to testify to Christ. They are subordinate to him. Which is actually why if we go forward in the book of Luke to Luke 24. Why in the road to Emmaus Jesus takes the disciples that didn't recognize him. And he interprets the scriptures to them. Beginning with Moses and the prophets in light of himself. These are testifying about me. He says. Now, Peter also seems to have not understood that this glimpse of glory was just that. It was a glimpse. It was momentary. It was intended to be temporary. It wasn't intended to be something that would be permanent on that mountain. There's no reason to build tents. He wanted to keep this thing going, but Jesus rebuked him. But as we see there in verse 37... It's not the plan that that would continue. Right? They went up to the mountain for a day, but they must go back down the mountain into the valley where there, are, there is a crowd waiting for Jesus down there. Where there are many who are suffering and there are many who are needy. Jesus needs to go back down that mountain to accomplish his exodus. Staying up there in glory is not the plan quite yet. So Peter initially got this mountaintop experience wrong. And that timing piece, that timing piece is one that we struggle with as well, don't we? In the Reformed world, we, we talk about this struggle as living in the already and the not yet. Right? The fact has come. That Christ has come, and we come in him to the heavenly Mount Zion. That we are, we are um, seated in the heavenly places with Christ by faith. And yet here we are on this earth. How does that make sense? How do I make sense of these things? That I'm, a, I'm someone who possesses eternal life, yet death is all around me. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have eternal life and we are encompassed by the presence of his Holy Spirit. Yet we live in the valley accompanied by many dangers and toils and snares. And we long for the mountain 
We long for that glory, for peace and joy and happiness with our God that is unending and not polluted by sin. The fact that we have the glory of Christ shown shown in us, yet we carry that glory, that, that treasure, in jars of clay. But we do long for that mountaintop experience right now. Our souls long for that glory that is to be revealed. Now we know that the Christian life is certainly not static, right? Today is not the same as yesterday, nor will tomorrow be the same as today. We're not always down in the deepest, darkest valleys, though we often spend time in those deep, dark valleys. There's varying degrees in which Christians recognize and experience highs and lows, ups and downs in the Christian walk. And there's times when we do have those highs, we might say. Times when we have experiences where we, where we feel a real sense of the nearness of God to us. Right? Maybe it was when you first came to Christ. There was a passion and a zeal and a, and a joy that you felt. Or times when a certain truth about Christ was so enthralling and majestic to your heart and your mind. And you, you just couldn't help but dwell on that thing. And I can remember times when a certain truth of God's word would suddenly take hold and I'd, I'd wonder how did I live before knowing this particular thing about this God who loves me. Like a new vista of God's majesty was exposed. Yet as time goes on, those experiences, that stunning truth, that excitement, it, it often fades with time. Because there's a plodding and a trudgingness to the Christian life. Right? It isn't always highs and exciting experiences. But you see, there's a danger that we could be like Peter, right? I want this to continue. I don't want to give this thing up. Right? There's a danger that we could base our assurances upon those highs. That we would be excitement chasers rather than Jesus followers. That we would prefer the feeling and the fix over Jesus himself who often leads us through the valley. You see, there's times when the Lord will grant us one of those experiences as an encouragement, right? Maybe we see so clearly a way in which the Lord has provided for us. Or maybe it's something of of the illumination of God's word in your heart and your mind. Or maybe it's through seeing his power in some way, through his comfort. And then the next thing you know, he takes you down in the valley to plod along life's path in perhaps a season of extended dryness. Where we must learn to trust him even when we are low. Here we learn that what will get us through From the cross of Christ to the heavenly Mount Zion to the new heavens and the new earth was what was to get Peter and John and James through the journey to Jerusalem where they would see their Lord humiliated. They would see their Lord beaten and mocked and killed and buried. 
all in complete and utter contrast to what was happening on the mountain. They would need to remember this moment as confirming to them that He is the effulgence of the glory of God, veiled in flesh. And that's exactly what we see here in verses 34 and 35. We see the Father's confirmation of Jesus and the comfort and encouragement that that's intended to give to his disciples. In the midst of Peter's confusion here, we we hear the Father speak. Now in a sense, this is the Father's affirmation of Peter's confession from verse 20 that Jesus is the Messiah... And yet it is also his his rebuke or correction to Peter for suggesting that they should build tents there in verse 33. Again, we shouldn't miss the Sinai imagery here. As the cloud covered Sinai, now a cloud comes and overshadows and encompasses the disciples They're terrified because what it means when the cloud comes upon a mountain is that God is coming. And the glory cloud of God's presence, a visible display of God's Holy Spirit surrounds them. And out of it, the Father speaks. But they're going to hear God like Moses did. And unlike the Father speaking at Jesus' baptism, this message is not directed to Jesus but to the disciples. And here the Father confirms to them that Jesus is the Son of God. This is my Son, whose glory is not reflective like Moses, whose whose shining face eventually began to fade. But rather, Jesus' glory is self-emanating, an emanating glory that is effusive and it it encompasses His entire being, For he is God whose glory is veiled in flesh. Veiled in flesh because he is also the chosen one. God's suffering servant who is to give his life to save his people. And so in confirming who Jesus is, the father then gives a command to the disciples. He says, listen to him. You see his glory, listen to him. Learn from him, let his word inform and reform you. Which is what most, much of the rest of the Gospel of Luke is devoted to, actually. Jesus teaching his disciples. There's very few parables, there's very few uh, narrative kind of stories. There's very few miracles that come later on in Luke. Jesus is teaching his disciples. And the point is that Jesus would would teach them what kind of Savior he is. Now it's interesting, just think about this for a second. It's interesting that on the mountain, seeing the glory, right? Peter, John, and James are seeing the glory of God. Sight was not enough. They see him face to face and they got it wrong. Peter saw the glory of God and didn't understand what he was seeing. 
The disciples need God's word to tell them what they are to do and what Jesus in his person means and who he is the same way in which we need his scripture today. And then in an instant, it's all over. The cloud vanishes. Moses and Elijah are gone and Jesus was left there alone in his ordinary veiled form, the way they knew him as they were walking up that mountain. And the four men walked down the mountain. Peter, John, and James, Luke tells us, they they didn't talk about that experience in those days. We can imagine that there were many times on the road to the cross where they didn't understand and they, and they doubted and they continued to listen to Jesus' words. It took quite a bit of time for that mountaintop experience to sink in. In fact, Peter ends up recounting that experience, that mountaintop experience in 2 Peter 1, verses 17 to 21. And if you read that passage, it's interesting that Peter's point in recounting the transfiguration, the thing that he was experiencing, is actually the point that God the Father made on that mountain. He ends that section by essentially saying, listen to Jesus. Listen to his word. That's what you need to do. That's the point of this. Right amid all the the splendor of the moment, the witnesses, Jesus' radiant, the the glory cloud of God's presence descending on the mountain. Amid all that majesty, God spoke and said, Listen to my son. This mountaintop moment is a a preview of the resurrection glory that Jesus himself gives to his people. For in his resurrection from the dead, in his resurrection glory, Christ sent his spirit who, like the glory cloud, comes and encompasses and indwells every single believer in Christ with the presence of God. Of Christ. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In that verse Paul is saying that the mountaintop experience wasn't just reserved for the disciples. In fact, that mountaintop experience is the experience of the Christian, is what he's saying. Not in its final fullness, but certainly in reality. Not necessarily in the emotional sense, but definitely in the spiritual sense. And we need to be careful not to confuse those things. There's times when our hearts are heavy with sleep. There's times when our spiritual senses are dulled from the trials of this world. There's times when our hearts are distracted by sin. Yet, dear brothers and sisters, 
We are invited as those who have been united to Jesus to ascend the mountain with him. In fact, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says is happening when the church of Christ gathers to worship. They're ascending the heavenly Mount Zion with their Lord Jesus. We ascend to the mountain. We join together with the assembly of Christ. We hear of the blood that speaks a better word, the blood that grants us access to glory, to union and communion with our God and with all the saints. Hebrews tells us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, just like Peter and John and James were surrounded by. Moses and Elijah and the saints praising Christ. And when we come as the church of Christ, what do we do? But revel in the exodus of Jesus. What do we do but speak about his departure and what he has done for us? We speak and we sing about Christ who brings us out of bondage into the wilderness, up to the mountain to worship our God, and we come to listen to Jesus' word as the Father commanded us to do so. Is that how you think about church? Is that how you think about church? Is that how you think about what's happening here? When you wake up in the morning and you say, oh, I just feel so tired from last night. I don't know if I can get my clothes on and get to church and time's running out. Do we realize that what we're doing as we gather is ascending the mountain with Jesus to behold the glory of God and to listen to his very word? Those things should be those things that that draw us together. Knowing what God is doing among us. Now I know that things are not yet what they will be. Right? The, The church here looks outwardly a lot different than it will look in glory. Right? There's a there's a veiledness of what happens here. But the spiritual reality is the same. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Christ is present with us. The angels are proclaiming and singing along with our songs. And just as that mountaintop with Jesus was intended to encourage and to give strength and confidence to the disciples on their way with Jesus to the cross, so too our weekly ascent to the heavenly Mount Zion is intended to carry us through, right? Every Lord's Day to carry us through to the day when we see Christ in his glory as he is and we are like him in the new heavens and the new earth. And we worship him there in the new Jerusalem. Yet even so, the mountaintop is is not reserved only for Sundays. It's not closed off every other day. For we have the privilege through the spirit of Christ and his word because of his exodus for us to go daily to the top of the mountain with Jesus. 
to see and hear him in the scriptures, to, to talk with him in our prayers. And guess what? We don't have to do it alone. We can go with one another to the mountain of God. As husbands and wives, we can ascend the mountain and hear the glories of Jesus as families, as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Brother, I know you're struggling. Let us go to the mountain of the Lord and behold the glory of Jesus. And let that give us some perspective. And let that shape us as we hear his word and pour out our hearts. Right? That we may be encouraged and given strength. That we may, we, 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 we may speak those things that are distressing our souls, that we would be taught and that we would be corrected and that we would be rebuked and that we would be comforted for all that time that we must still spend in the valley. Now, sometimes those mountaintop hikes will be exhilarating and other times they may seem quite ordinary, but they will always be well worth the track. For it is there in the presence of Christ through his word and his spirit that we behold his glory. That with unveiled faces we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for commanding that we would listen to Jesus and for giving us everything necessary that we would indeed listen to him. Oh, Lord, would you continue to open our hearts? Would you continue to give us your spirit, grace upon grace? Lord, that our ears would be more eager day by day, to hear the word of Christ and to revel in his exodus. May our words to one another be constantly refraining the gospel of our Lord Jesus, reminding one another what Christ has done, reminding one another what he is still going to do in bringing us to glory and reminding us of the great privilege that we have to ascend the mount with our Savior. Oh Lord, would you bless us as your church, as your beloved people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.